0: Hello and good morning Derek. Good morning Ben. How are you?
1: I'm doing well how are you?
0: I'm good I have this feeling that someone's listening to us.
1: There's like a there's like a third person in the room right now.
0: I I just feel a presence uh, (laughs) sort of a metaphysical presence. It has a sort of PHP flavor to it.
1: (laughs) And a CSS flavor.
0: It does yeah. So um, we are joined today by uh, a man we have mentioned many times and like sub mentioned many times, uh, Adam Wathan.
2: Hey, how's it going, guys?
0: Uh, I did it wrong, isn't Wathan?
2: Wathan, yep. I just Wathen. I don't really bother correcting people. Take your best yeah. stab at it. I'll appreciate it. Uh, however, it comes out. So. <laughs> the worst I ever get is Watan. Some people sometimes will call me and think I'm Asian or something.
0: So, <laughs> uh, which is... dude, I love uh, Adam Watan. Yeah. Pretty awesome.
2: Also, the other one I get is Watham. Like people think my parents would be cruel enough to give me a rhyming name. I mean, like Adam uh, Watham. <laughs> uh, I like that a lot. Yeah.
0: Nice. Well, welcome. I'm glad to have you on the podcast.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So I think this is uh, the first time we've had three people on the podcast. Is that right, Derek?
2: Yeah, I think it is.
0: All right. Blazing new ground. Yeah. So Adam, I've talked about you a lot, um, I think. So people might have an idea of who you are, but just in case, maybe give us kind of your uh, quick summary of who you are and what you've been doing.
2: Sure. So I'm uh, primarily a software developer who does a lot of stuff in the PHP and uh, Laravel space. And uh, for the longest time, I worked for you know agencies uh, doing client work, sort of similar to the sort of thing that you would have done at ThoughtBot. Uh, but over the last year and a half, I was able to uh, go solo uh, working on my own products. So I have a, a book and video series that teaches PHP programmers how to use uh, sort of some functional programming principles to refactor like loops and conditionals and stuff. And that's kind of what uh, did well enough to let me go out on my own originally and then i also have a a video course on doing tdd uh, with laravel so that's kind of uh what i do for a living and then i'm also involved in a bunch of other kind of open source and related projects uh, as well so yeah that's kind of the uh, summary
0: nice i was hoping you could maybe walk us through in a little more detail uh, like take us back to when you were building your first product and how that let you leave your job
2: yeah, sure. So I've kind of wanted to create something and sell it on the internet uh, for a long, long time. But every idea that I would sort of come up with sort of was either too ambitious or intimidating, or, you know, it, j- it just seemed like it's going to take forever to do this. It's hard to commit the time when you don't necessarily have like an end in sight, sort of thing. Um, so a friend of mine who Does similar sort of things, but in the audio engineering space, um, I kind of met up with him to talk uh, to him about what he was doing sort of shortly after I noticed that he was being successful with this stuff. Just to kind of like pick his brain and find out um, if he had any advice for anyone who wanted to get into doing the same sort of thing. And what he recommended to me after I explained that, you know, I had a couple of ideas, but all of them just seemed too big to tackle. He uh, suggested just trying to make something that he called the tripwire product, which I've heard in other spaces, uh, but basically just something really small and cheap that you can sell for like nine or $10 just to sort of get your feet wet with selling things online and build a little bit of a qualified, you know, audience where, you know, these people like care about what you do and are willing to spend money on your stuff. So he mentioned that idea to me and uh, I had been sort of building a little bit of notoriety on Twitter and the PHP sort of circles um, for posting all these little refactoring tips uh, related to sort of simplifying loops and conditionals with, um, you know, collection pipeline operations like map and reduce and filter and zip and each cons and some of the kind of cool or fancier ones that are a lot more common um, for people to use in languages like Ruby or JavaScript with, you know, libraries like Lodash and stuff but not so common, uh, in PHP. So I had been kind of just really getting into this cause it was a really fun sort of piece of programming that I was learning and getting better at. So I was just kind of sharing what I was doing and noticing that people started to kind of like get excited about some of the things that I was sharing. So I thought, well, maybe I could make like a little like 25 page PDF. That's just like my favorite sort of collection pipeline refactoring tips. And that sounded super tackleable, right? And I thought I could probably do this in like two weeks. So I just started kind of hacking on that. And uh, the idea was just to pick a bunch of different examples and just sort of flesh them out and just see where it went. And... Um, it took a lot longer than two weeks, of course. I think it took me about three months eventually. But what was originally planned to be like a twenty-five page PDF turned into like a hundred and sixty-page book with like four hours of screencasts and a bunch of exercises that shipped with it and stuff. Um, but had I known that that's what I was going to end up making, I probably would have been too intimidated to ever start.
0: Why did that change happen, by the way? Like, what 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 caused it to grow from that small thing to the big thing?
2: I think it just happened writing it. So. Um, I decided I wanted to kind of add a section at the beginning of the book that was sort of talking about fundamentals and sort of explaining how these this sort of approach to solving problems just even works in general. You know, the idea of sort of chaining together um, operations instead of trying to do a bunch of work in a big loop and sort of explaining how you can, um, you know, extract patterns using anonymous functions. And it, it just ended up getting to be more in depth than i expected you know so by the time i was done with just like the sort of intro section of the book that was like 30 pages or something which was bigger than i had planned for um the whole thing to be originally and i had like 15 examples in mind um, and then as i was working on the examples some of those examples were like 15 pages long um, so it just it just turned out to be uh, bigger you know than i expected um, but it turned into something that I actually am really happy with and, and really proud of and feels like a nice sort of complete reference for the sort of things that I wanted to teach. So mm-hmm.
0: and, and I suppose another upside of that is that you ended up creating a pretty in depth course and you can price that accordingly.
2: Yeah. I remember like in early when I was working on it at the beginning, I was having conversations with people trying to decide if I should charge nine dollars or twelve dollars. And um, when I eventually released it, I think I had three tiers. The lowest one was $29 for just the book, and that was a discounted price, and then $59 for the book plus videos, and then I think 100 and $109 or 139 or something for the top tier, which was the book, the videos, uh, plus a SaaS app that I had built um, that used a lot of those ideas in sort of real world scenarios, just as like an example reference. Um, so I think at the end of the day, my average sale price during my launch was like seventy or eighty dollars per sale, um, which was pretty awesome considering that was actually higher than both of the lowest two tiers, and it was like eight times higher than what I was originally planning to sell the thing for when I thought it was going to be some small thing. But yeah, I got I kind of just. um I don't know if I necessarily got lucky there is the right way to, to say it, but the book was really successful, um, in terms of just how many people purchased it and stuff. And I think I made like 60 grand Canadian or something over the launch, which is enough to kind of make me think, wow, okay, maybe I can do this full time. Like that'll buy me quite a bit of time to work on something else. And I wanted to do this testing course for the longest time, but that was the idea that just seemed like unsurmountable to me, especially while I was working full time. And so I thought, you know, like, I'm probably not going to get a better chance than this one to try and work full time on this other product and see what I can do with that. Uh, So I decided to, instead of just letting that money slowly vanish from my bank account on various home repairs and annoying things like that, um, to actually look at it as like, uh, you know, what I'm going to be drawing a salary from while I work on uh, the next thing. And then I was fortunate enough that the, the next product did really well too. And, uh, it's, those things continue to sell, although, you know, things have slowed down since it's like a one-time sale sort of product. Uh, but yeah, I'm still, you know, doing fine, sustaining myself and, uh, always kind of looking for the next thing uh, to work on now. So,
1: yeah, I'm, I'm curious, Adam, uh, you mentioned that you were drumming up kind of support and, and buzz via Twitter. Um yeah. and I'm wondering, did you have other channels? Were you collecting email addresses? Were you talking about it on your podcast? What what were like the main drivers for people finding out about what you're working on?
2: Yeah, so I did have a landing page that I put up as soon as I decided that I wanted to create this thing and uh pointed people to that from Twitter and I probably did mention it on my podcast, although I don't really remember if I pushed it too hard there. Uh but Twitter was really the main thing, even to just to drive people to the landing page. And then I think I launched to about 1500 people on the list. So I did try to do everything, you know, by the book in terms of um, uh, keeping the list up to date. So I'd be sending free samples uh, of things I was working on. I was doing the same thing via Twitter with just like little screenshots of like maybe a paragraph that I was really proud of how it turned out in the book or whatever, Um, or like a little screenshot of a code example. But I would send out full free chapters to the list or uh, free videos. By the time I had gotten a lot of that stuff done, I think by the time that I had actually launched it, I'd probably given away over half the contents of the book for free to the list, but it wasn't in any sort of sequence or anything. So it's not like anyone could just sign up and get all that stuff. It's only if you were there from the beginning that you would have sort of collected that stuff uh, over time. So I did kind of your typical approach where, you know, you let everyone know what the release date is going to be a week in advance or whatever. Uh, send an email a couple days before again saying, here's all the information. Here's what the packages are. Here's what the prices are. Here's what goes into everything. And then on launch day at like 730 in the morning or something, because I was too eager to be able to wait any longer. I just sent out a broadcast email to everyone saying, here's a sales page. Uh, It's available. And then my phone just like dinged constantly, like, the whole day i remember i'd like go take my dog for a walk for 20 minutes and come back and i made five thousand dollars sort of thing which was pretty cool so that was that still stands out to me as like one of the uh the craziest most like exciting days of my life so even though my second product did a lot more in revenue the first one it's just the first time i'd ever sold anything online like that right and just this feeling of just sitting there and people are buying something from you is just like i don't know it's crazy it's hard to explain
1: indeed yeah i I recall uh for a while with with uh, drip and code tree having um alerts turned on like push notifications anytime someone signed up for a trial or or end up you know charging their card for money and it's just like yeah it's this little hit of of whatever chemicals and happy chemicals in your brain it's just (laughs) like it's hard to describe
2: (laughs) yeah it's pretty awesome i still haven't turned off any notifications for any of that stuff a year and a half later (laughs) hey no judgment
0: (laughs) (laughs) I remember the first time, the first time I sold a screencast to a stranger on the internet for money. And I like, I almost went in panic mode. Like my, my heart was pounding like crazy. Like it was like this like shot of adrenaline in my body where it's like, Oh my God, I can't believe it's working. This, this thing is actually happening.
2: Yep. Yeah. And there's also for me, at least there was an element of, Oh my God, I hope these people actually like this thing. They've, they've given me their money now. And you know, I have to, I'm like on the hook in some way for like being worth their money. And it's just, it's kind of intimidating and scary in a lot of ways. But at the end of the day, everyone ends up, you know, being satisfied with it and and loved it and it was fine. But yeah, it is a scary thing to take somebody else's money and give them something that you made as if anything you could ever make is worth someone's money. You know what I mean? Like, um, (laughs) yeah, yeah,
0: that is difficult. And like, also you have effectively created a relationship with them. Totally.
2: Totally. How quickly did you
0: start work on your second course after that first one launched?
2: I think uh, I launched the book on the second or third week of May last year. And then I started working on the course in July or August. Took a little bit of a break and worked on some open source projects and stuff there. Um, so I started working on the course uh, yeah, towards the end of the summer and then Launched it in early access in uh, November.
0: Do you feel like you took some big lessons away from the first launch that you rolled into the second course, the TTD course?
2: I think the main thing that I took away, like the one thing that sticks out is for the book, I only had a three-day launch window. So I think I launched it on like a Wednesday morning or something, or maybe a Tuesday. And the sale ended on Friday. And sales were still coming in really, really fast up until the end of the day on Friday. And then, But I had announced that that's when it was going to end, so I felt obligated to just turn off the sale price and then all of a sudden sales stop and it's like I literally just like turned off a money fountain for no reason. (laughs) So um, after that, I I kind of like panicked a little bit and tried to figure out different ways to sort of keep that sale going either by emailing the list and being like, hey, I decided to extend it a little bit because – um, you know, some people have been emailing me saying, Oh, I missed out on the thing. I was going to buy it early this week, or I had to get approval from my boss or whatever. Um, but it still felt kind of crappy to sort of go back on my word in any way. Um, it just made me feel like a, a liar or something. So I definitely, the main lesson that I took away there was, um, just to not make my launch window, like artificially short for no reason at all. Uh, so I kind of did like the the total polar opposite of that for my testing course and uh i just kind of released it said this is the early access price because i kind of pre-sold it in a sense like i i opened it up for sale before all the content was ready there was still like 40 videos and like six hours of content by the time i released it so people were probably you know it's it's gonna you're not gonna get through it by the time um i haven't released the the rest of the stuff uh but yeah i just kept it at that price forever while I was working on the content and only actually recently took that out of that sale price towards the end of this summer. I think maybe like August, I raised the price or September Um, because it's been a really long slog putting this thing together. I was right to be intimidated by the amount of work uh, originally. Uh, But yeah, that ended up working a lot better for me. I feel like I didn't artificially limit any sales uh, or anything. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any other real strong lessons that I took away from it. I think like, I think that's the only thing that I can look back at and say I did wrong and I would like to do differently. Um, I think the other thing that I took away from it was just sort of how valuable it turned out being to do all the stuff, you know, quote unquote, right. That I had learned from reading from people like Nathan Barry and stuff like that about how he has had successful product launches and just the importance of, Collecting emails, the importance of keeping your list updated, the importance of uh, sending out free content, and just sort of um, keeping people, you know, aware uh, that you're working on something, as well as you know, having a launch discount at all. Versus you know, a lot of people will just put something out at a price and not even think about this stuff. Right? It's it's that's like a really low hanging fruit, obviously, or um, things like pricing tiers. Like like I said, my average sale price was like seventy or eighty dollars, and the middle tier was $59 at launch. And, the so if I had only made it a book or something, I think I would have made like 30% total, the amount of revenue that I added by being able to add. I think it was like 15 screencast examples. And then this code base that I already had, you know, which was my sort of example thing. So that wasn't really any extra work besides just sort of going through and cleaning it up a little bit and making sure it was in a good state to just kind of share with the world. Um, yeah that being said I didn't do tiered pricing on my second product only because I uh, released it early and it felt weird to have like three tiers or something where no matter what tier you bought you'd be getting the same content to start because the way I would have sliced it would have been maybe there's the first x videos that cover sort of the fundamentals are included in the base package and then there's like more advanced stuff layered on towards the end right and none of that stuff would have been done towards the end so what i decided to do is just sell the whole thing basically assuming that this would have been the top tier like that's the only tier that i made available and then that after that, I just realized, well, there's no point in adding these cheaper tiers because people have been totally happy to pay this price anyways. So I probably could have, or could still add additional higher tiers on top of that. Um, but it ended up working out okay. I think like the lesson I learned there was just never tiered down, <laughs> um, only tier up, um, cause it ended up working out fine. So
1: you mentioned like there's 40 videos and it, you're working on it for a few months. And I think we. You know, as people just tend, we're all guilty of this from time to time of, of underestimating the amount of effort that goes into to something like this. Did you ever find yourself in kind of like a, a pit of despair where you're like, you're deep into building this course out and it's becoming a slog and really difficult to keep moving forward? And did you have any things you, you did to kind of put power through that?
2: I can say like there was definitely like a moment of panic because I actually announced a release date for the course. Um probably like must have been like th- maybe four weeks beforehand because i find for me i really need like a deadline to really be my at my most productive um it's really easy to otherwise feel like you're doing a lot of work but not actually be working on things that are making a difference um i don't know it's just really easy to fill your day with stuff that isn't actually getting you closer to the finish line but as soon as like you have a deadline uh, the amount of clarity that that brings is kind of crazy. Right. Um, so I did that. And then, you know, probably a week before it was supposed to be released, I was like, wow, like this, there's no way that I'm going to have this done in a week because every single lesson that I plan that I expect to be a 20 minute video ends up being like five or six, 15 minute videos or something. Uh, because I just keep finding that I have more to explain or more to show. And the way I kind of structured it, it was like basically documenting building uh, a production application from scratch with TDD, which I think is, I still am really happy that I kind of took that approach because I don't think there's a lot of other stuff out there. There's a lot of, you know, here's how mocking works or here's how to test this or here's how to test this. Um, But there's not a lot out there just showing you, Okay, we have a blank editor and we want to write this new project and we want to do it with tdd so what's the very first test we write i think there's a lot of things that you're not going to learn unless you watch someone making decisions and refactoring code and going back and fixing things that you know now this design is um, you know not going to support this new feature so how do we go and accommodate this new feature using TDD. There's there's just all sorts of workflow things that I think you would never be able to fit into something that was just purely organized by different testing topics or something. But it ends up making the whole thing like immensely longer than <laughs> you ever could have uh, anticipated. So, um yeah, basically I I would be working hard on something and everything would just be four times as much effort as I thought, so I just wasn't as far as I wanted to be by the time that I planned to launch it. And I had to kind of make a decision. Do I still launch it on that day? Or do I just delay the launch and delaying things sucks? Cause it sucks to email people and say, Hey, this is the date that it's going to be out and then not deliver on that. So I talked to a bunch of people and got some opinions and uh, decided, okay, let's well release it early. Uh, we'll call it like early access. And I'll say, like, you know, there's gonna be new lessons coming constantly until the whole thing is done. And that ended up uh, working really well. But, Um, the thing that I needed to do after that, you know, because that deadline was now gone, right. I still had this sort of like impending, uh, (laughs) pressure to deliver for people who had purchased the course where I needed to, you know, deliver the rest of the content. But what I found really helped there was just kind of keeping in touch with my customers and emailing them every week saying, here's the new lessons. Um, and sort of, mentioning what I was planning on next and sort of giving micro deadlines there as well. Like next week we're going to be covering this stuff. Um, and it, it's still hard to, it was still hard to keep up with that, you know, new module every week, a lot of the time. Uh, so sometimes I would, uh, it'd be maybe two weeks, sometimes three weeks before I'd get something out because, the amount of stupid things that take up your time when you work for yourself that you don't think about, uh, <laughs> is brutal. Like I, right now I am behind on submitting my sales tax to the government, which I have to go and export a bunch of data and figure out which customers came from Canada and which postal codes they're from, which, you know, results in different tax rates and figure out what yeah. there's just all this crap that just takes days of work all the time, constantly. Um, that gets in the way of things. So you never have as much time to work on things as you want, but yeah, setting these kind of micro deadlines and keeping in touch with people and just still just being really public and open about everything I find uh, really helps me. I really, uh, I, I really can't say to someone, Hey, I'm going to email you videos on Friday and then not do it, you know? Uh, (laughs) So that has uh, has really helped me kind of keep that uh, momentum going on on bigger projects, just sort of slicing it up into smaller things that you can make smaller promises for. And then just, you know, uh, having other people keep you accountable, whether that's through the what you guys do on this podcast, talking to each other every week about what you're working on or by literally promising a customer that you're going to have uh, new lessons recorded for them on a, on a certain day. So uh, that's definitely the, the thing that's helped me the most there.
0: Something interesting I notice about your courses Adam is that typically with products like these one-time purchases you see a bit a giant spike during the early launch and then they drop off a cliff and go to you know not quite zero but maybe close and it seems like uh, you've been doing this for a while and it seems like you have a pretty strong like sustained sales for these courses and to me it seems like you take on these courses and you make them definitive To me, like I feel like there may as well be no other TDD in Laravel course uh, that exists because yours is so comprehensive, so well known, so thorough, and so you just become like the answer to how do you learn this thing, and so you, yeah, you're you're paying this huge time penalty of like that course took a long time to make, but you're you're seeing this like sustained sell through afterwards. Would you agree with that?
2: I wouldn't completely agree. That's actually still like an area of my business that I really want to work on improving. Um, I still do get like. So with my, my book, I probably get like probably about like $2,000 a month in sales from that still, which um, broken down day by day isn't really a lot. Like there's a lot of days where there's no sales and then there's maybe a day where there's two or whatever. So maybe I get like a couple hundred dollar check every week from Gumroad or whatever. But when you look at that on a monthly basis, it's like, okay, well, that's like my mortgage plus all my expenses just from this product that I have. So that's cool, right? It is, it is more than it sounds like. But yeah, it did definitely drop off huge after the launch and the book sales uh, continue to slow down because I, I don't really have anything in place to sort of drive traffic there or keep people excited about this this topic or anything. Uh, with the testing course, I think what worked the best for me there was because I had pre released it, I still kept doing stuff on Twitter, like when I was working on the next lessons, you know? So, um, by still working on the thing, you have an excuse to keep talking about it, which was one advantage over releasing it finished. So when it's finished, you know, you, the only thing you have to say about it is, Hey, uh, I still have a book that you can still buy and you just kind of look like a sleazy salesman or whatever. But if, um, you're still actively working on something, you know, it's really easy to, uh, share that with people without feeling like, all you're trying to do is like get a sale. You know, if I'm, I I really try to work on projects that I'm excited about that I think are really cool. You know what I mean? So, um, when I am working on a lesson for the testing course or something, I'm genuinely excited about like the ideas that I'm teaching there. So it's easy for me to, to try and summarize some cool element of it and share that on Twitter. Um, and feel like even though that is marketing my course and helping me Um, run my business Uh, I'm also just doing it because like I like sharing cool stuff on Twitter you know what I mean and people like get value from it it's not like here's a little teaser that's not valuable on its own I try to you know help people in public with free stuff where you don't need to buy the course to to get the value from whatever information I'm sharing Um, but by continuing to work on the thing you know you have more ideas for these sorts of of pieces of value that you can sort of share with the world. Um, but yeah, sales have slowed down for the the testing course too. And I have some ideas for how to, how to improve that, uh, hopefully, but I think, uh, fundamentally at the end of the day, there's always still going to be that little piece of, uh, keeping it up to date so you can keep talking about it without looking like you're just trying to sell some old stuff. You know, it needs to feel active. Um, and I think that's the, that's what I've learned the most, uh, that, and then I just, I really need to do some work on just making sure that people have a reason to even find this site. You know, I've been lucky that I have a big audience of people who already trust me and, um, want to learn from me, uh, that has worked out really well for me, but I don't have much in place to optimize for people who find my stuff because they're interested in what I'm teaching, but don't already know who I am or don't already, trust me from from something else, you know? So I think I need to do a better job of of putting some things out there um, that are kind of optimized for cold traffic, where if someone can come to the site because they're interested in learning about testing with Laravel, I want to be able to do a better job of helping them to TDD with Laravel without having to buy the course right away, because that's sort of the relationship right. that I have with my existing audience, right? So. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So uh, I want to talk about Tailwind. Sure.
0: I'm excited about this. Um, so you you seem to be a man of many projects, and this is the latest and uh, <laughs> an exciting projects. one. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: what do you want to know? Do you know? want
0: to throw out the pitch for Tailwind? Sure. I can why, throw why, why should people be interested?
2: Okay. So... Tailwind CSS is a uh, utility-first CSS framework, which is sort of a term that I made up, but I can explain it in a little bit more depth if anyone's interested. Uh, But it's a framework for people who have some sense of design skills or CSS skills and want something that's going to help them build custom user interfaces faster. Uh, So the biggest issue that I see with other frameworks out there like Bootstrap and stuff is they do a great job of helping people who don't really know like what they want to do with a design and they sort of want to be able to choose from a menu of sort of pre-designed pre-configured components to sort of put together a user interface but if you're working with a design team or you're a designer and you're trying to implement something totally custom you spend like so much time just fighting with the defaults or overriding styles or trying to figure out which variables you need to tweak to get something to look the way you want. And it's just not like a really great experience. So uh, tailwind provides a bunch of low, low, low level CSS abstractions for just directly manipulating things like borders and background colors and fonts and text colors and text sizes and stuff uh, to make it really easy to compose sort of custom user interfaces directly in your markup. And then what makes it sort of unique versus some of the other frameworks out there that take that same approach like there's other frameworks like tachyons um, that are you know these functional css frameworks that are built on these low-level utilities Uh, but we provide this whole layer of like additional tooling to help you sort of create abstractions around some of these repeating patterns in your markup and extract components and stuff Um, which is just kind of like a workflow that i've used in css for uh, the longest time so it's been really fun to sort of try and encode this into like a framework that is a as much a tool as it is like a way of approaching how you build things in the browser. Um, so that's kind of the high level uh, pitch at sort of an abstract place, but that's been a, a really fun project to be working on for the last few weeks. I've been working on it really, really hard. Cause again, we sort of promised like that we would put it out publicly in the fall and fall is quickly disappearing. Um, I guess fall doesn't actually technically end till like December 20th or something which it doesn't certainly doesn't feel mm. like fall by December 20th where I live but <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah same yeah so yeah so uh, that's kind of what I've been uh, working on lately and happy to talk about uh, any more of the interesting details it's sometimes it's what's hard with projects like this is when you're really deep into something it's hard to see it from sort of an outside perspective and know like what is interesting or what is, what am I assuming somebody else knows? You know what I mean? Um, so mm-hmm. I, I'd love any questions you have about um, what's not clear or 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 what you're wondering about it.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I have some questions because um, this is something that I've gradually kind of um, given up control of the the CSS code base and drip over to our design team. I find our us today using basically like a, a BEM convention or BEM, however you say it. But I also see from time to time, our designer's throwing in more and more utility classes. So I see a mix of like, just throw this class on to add a certain amount of padding below an element or something like that. Since you say utility first, is the idea that you start styling your interface using predominantly utility classes, and then when the when it becomes time to basically refactor your, your styles, then you kind of extract those utilities into like a a higher level class that encapsulates all the different properties for that component or yeah are you yeah or you okay or i wasn't sure if it was like always use utilities and never abstract them into into like a higher level class or yeah
2: yeah there's sort of two ways of thinking about that so um some of the other frameworks out there that take the same sort of low level abstraction approach will tell you that if you want to So the biggest thing that people see with this approach, right, is they see like these super long class lists in their HTML and a lot of time they see like repeating class lists. So if you're building a button and you have no button class and the button is literally composed of classes like BG blue, border blue dark, text white, text bold horizontal padding this size, vertical padding this size, um, and you have to use that same button in 50 places in your interface, copying and pasting that list of classes is going to like set off your duplication maintainability alarms pretty quick, right? Because if you want to update the style of that button, you don't have a single place to update it anymore. Um, So the solution that's proposed by a lot of other frameworks is to sort of handle that in your templating layer, right? So if you're building like a React app or something, well, maybe you make like a button component in React and you put all these utility classes in that component, but then everywhere else in your app, you're just dropping in that button component. So you're not actually repeating those classes. Um, I think that's totally an awesome approach. I don't think it's practical for everybody. Like there's, it, it seems like a, a bit of a leap to say, to use the CSS framework, you must also, templatize every single element of your user interface it just that's a big leap for people to take in addition to embracing this like 11 classes on every element in your html thing you know so we provide tooling with with tailwind to make it easy to say okay i've i've used this combination of classes three times now to make this same button Um, I want to be able to edit that from one place. And Tailwind is written as a post-CSS plugin. So we add sort of custom rules into CSS that we sort of transform back into regular CSS as part of the build chain. But what we let you do is basically take that list of classes, copy it, paste it into your CSS in like a button component class, so like a dot BTN class, you use this custom at rule we have called at apply. So you say at apply and paste this list of classes that you took out of your HTML. And those are going to just be dumped in just like a SAS mixin would where just literally copy and paste those values into that component. And then you can replace any instances of those repeating patterns in your markup. Uh, with that component the thing i think is really powerful about this utility first approach is that it really does a good job of preventing premature optimization so there's so many situations in a user interface where traditionally using like a bem style approach you'll create a component for something even though you only ever use that component once in the whole app so like an example that always comes to mind for me is like a nav bar you're never repeating the markup for a nav bar in an app usually, right? You have some sort of layout file. So that's already handled in like the template layer. So even if that appears on every single page, you're usually just extending uh, some layout, right? Um, so creating a component for a nav bar, a lot of time is a waste of CSS because like that's not saving you any duplication because that list of utility classes would have only appeared one place in your project but with something like buttons or form controls or things that you do want to like use in a bunch of different places i'm using this sort of utility first approach if you compose that out of utilities originally you can just sort of keep an eye on like when am i copying and pasting something from another page well, um, am i worried that like i'm going to want to change both these things at the same time well now i create an abstraction out of it you know it's 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 the same way you work in like regular programming back-end code you, know, you don't necessarily like create functions For something that never gets reused or create an abstraction around something but in css that the tendency has always been this premature abstraction approach where you're trying to define a component before you even know that it's ever going to get reused um so this workflow has worked really well for me in terms of keeping that balance between keeping the css sort of small small ish like the f- it's not a tiny framework like i think Tailwind's default configuration is like 27 kilobytes minified and gzipped which is totally reasonable especially if you look at what happens to projects at scale otherwise <laughs> um but it keeps things it keeps your css sort of low churn you know um so you're not adding new css every time you add new ui you're only adding new css when you want to prevent duplication basically
1: yeah, I really like that. I feel like it's something, one, I, I rarely see CSS refactored. And I feel like this is like, this is almost something you you don't necessarily feel the pain when a project is small. But what, as soon as you have a really large application where you have lots of different components and some and probably a good chunk of them are used only once, then I could see this like, you've got bloated CSS files, you've got, um, you know, and, and if you're just constantly adding components and never refactoring. Then um, it can become quite unwieldy, and I have kind of seen that progression happen now in Drip. Then it's a really mature application. Then if you're not if you're not focusing on things like your level of specificity in your CSS, and you've got you know some some folks who who take a different approach with nesting classes inside of each other, and others who don't. And so I, I really like the fact that this gives you basically a a path for like start. Start with utilities, and then I think the refactoring step probably is important, because if someone is just always copying and pasting the the long chain of utility classes, then that seems like a, a code smell. But it, it is an obvious one. Like, as soon as you've copied this multiple times, then here's the path forward for that. So. Totally. And,
2: you, and you're actively copying and pasting it, right? So it's impossible yeah. to not notice that you copy yeah. and paste it. Although yeah. there are situations where maybe you are creating a button style from scratch, And not realizing that, wow, this is like very similar to this other button, except for it's got one small, slightly different thing. Does that really need to be different? Like, should I just uh, reuse the styles from the other one and maybe create a component? Or maybe it does need to be different, which then gives you a sense for what should actually be in a button component, right? So another thing that's really helpful about this approach, uh, in my experience, is... If you have like repeated utilities in a bunch of different places, but maybe one of them also has a box shadow and the other two don't, it's really easy to see, okay, I shouldn't include the box shadow in the component. I can layer the box shadow on top of it as like an additional utility. Okay, you really CSS I think of as like a very additive language. Like you really want to avoid overriding styles or undoing styles. Um, If you ever have like a button that has like a style baked into it, that's somewhere else in your UI, you want to use that button, but remove one piece of it. In my opinion, it's better to remove that from the button completely. And everywhere else in the UI, like say you have 12 buttons, and 11 of them look the same, except for this one which would have had to undo a style on the other ones. I would rather add a utility to 11 of those buttons to add that one extra thing than try and undo it. And the other thing, because I think that's what leads to a lot of uh, maintainability
1: issues when you, you really just throw you just throw an important on it, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could do that too. I mean, I think like the biggest problem that happens with CSS on teams, especially if like you're new to a project that you haven't worked on before is CSS is global, right? So, you never know when editing CSS, what you might be changing in a part of the app that you've never even seen or never even thought that this could be affecting. So what people always do, or at least what I've always done, and maybe you guys can tell me if this sounds familiar is you sort of try and carve out your own corner in the CSS in a way where like, okay, I know that whatever I add here is not going to be messing up anyone else's stuff because I've added specific classes to my HTML that no one else has ever used yet. And I know that it's like safe, to change this without affecting anybody else's stuff. And when you have to take that approach to writing CSS, because you're expected to write CSS to style things, well, your CSS file is just gonna grow and grow and grow and grow uh, forever. So by doing things in the markup instead, you have this reusable set of utilities. And if I apply those utilities to some element in the markup, well, of course that's not gonna affect anything else on the site because they're just directly applied to that, that one piece, right? So.
1: Wow, makes a lot of sense, yeah.
2: It's a it's, it's a tricky thing to convince people is a good idea. I, I wrote a blog post a few months ago that I really tried to explain sort of my journey from sort of the CSS Zen Garden approach to writing CSS. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that site where the idea is, you know, any any document should be able to be drastically restyled just by throwing like a different style sheet on it. So you want your HTML to be like completely unaware of the fact that it's being styled in any way, sort of my journey from writing CSS that way, which sounds so logical when you're learning to like the way I approach things now, which is completely different. And I think, um, I think the light bulb moment for me was uh, realizing that when people talk about like separation of concerns in HTML and CSS, right there, the idea is that separation of concerns means your HTML doesn't know anything about the presentation and all the presentation goes in the CSS. The reality is like, there's not really a separation of concerns. It's, it's more about the direction of your dependencies. So when you write CSS that way, you have HTML that's completely independent and doesn't depend on anything and has no knowledge of the outside world. But you have CSS that's very specifically crafted to kind of slither its way through this document you've created and style things you know what i mean Um, because it has to sort of know about the structure of it to pinpoint the elements that it wants to style without a bunch of classes and stuff Um, the approach that i take now i feel like is sort of the inversion of that where your css has literally no knowledge of the app that you're building because it doesn't even have classes for things like signup form, you know what I mean? Um, the, everything is very content agnostic. It's just about presentation. Um, so that CSS is completely portable and can be used to style any document. Um, but the HTML has to be aware of the CSS, right? So, so it's just sort of inverting um, that dependency. So you can either write CSS that can be used everywhere, or you can write HTML that can be styled by any style sheet, you know what I mean? Um, you have to sort of pick one of those for your circumstances and i find more often than not um you want a reusable css more than you want restylable html Mm -hmm.
1: i feel like that's a that's a bit of a more honest take like we i remember that css zen garden back back in the day when i was first learning about css and it was like you know the whole notion of semantic html and and separation of concerns and and all that like it i never was able to actually do a project where that was truly like it truly worked out that way. Where like I usually found myself positioning markup like the order of divs in a container usually affected how it looked. You know, I wasn't able to just drop you know divs and other semantic elements on the page without any thought about how it's going to be presented. Like so, you're oh you really are thinking about presentation when you're when you're crafting your markup, which does seem to suggest that maybe you should be. Yeah, like genericizing your your CSS as opposed to trying to genericize your HTML markup.
2: Yeah, I think the other thing is like uh, we're not writing documents really on the internet anymore. We're building user interfaces, right? And if you look at any other sort of user interface, you know, tool and other sort of ecosystems, and I mean like WinForms, for example, if you're making like an old Windows desktop app, the notion that laying out the interface and like controlling how the interface looks should be separate doesn't even make any sense at all. Um, like that's just not how it works in any other environment. Like you're building an interface, you know, which is how something looks and feels and and works. It's not a document uh, that you're styling. Like there are use cases for that with HTML, right? Like I'm sure there's lots of situations you can think of like Markdown or LaTeX or something. There's all these examples of uh documents that you want to be able to apply different themes and styles to and stuff but for the sorts of things that you know web application developers are working on it's it's entirely different you're building real user interfaces so
1: makes a lot of sense
0: (laughs) this is how i feel when i talk to you adam is like you just keep saying things that make sense and i just go all right i guess i have to agree with that So Tailwind is freshly out. People can go use this now, right?
2: Yeah, we released the first, we called it like the first alpha or whatever, uh, beginning of last week, which is 0.1.0. And we're up to like 0.1.6 now with a bunch of different uh, tweaks and changes and stuff. It's It's been really crazy, the response to it, honestly. I think we're at like 2,500 or... 3000 github stars or something already um, I, I even had like a mailing list for the css framework which is just kind of like crossing the streams between like the marketing world and the <laughs> uh the open source world uh but yeah it's been it's been going awesome like people have already started like registering domains like someone created Tailwindexpo.com, which is like a bunch of examples of tailwind sites people have already launched even though the thing has already been only been out for a week um and still changing pretty rapidly, but we're trying to be careful not to. We're trying to make it stable enough that people can actually use it on stuff, because that would be a bummer if we kept breaking it for people. Uh, but also trying to make sure we still have the liberty to to improve it in ways that may be resulting in breaking changes. But um, yeah, so far, so far, so good. It's been really fun and exciting to work on. It's definitely the biggest, uh, most active open source project I've sort of been responsible for. Um, so we'll see where it goes. We got a lot of ideas for. Uh, for directions we want to take it in and, and other things that we want to add. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I wish there was a way to get paid to work on open source that was dependable because it, it, I was talking about this with someone yesterday. This is like the most fun I've ever had working on something that impacts like the largest amount of people and like the fastest way, you know, it, like this might be like the thing that I make that um, is of the most value to the most people, but somehow there's no way for me to like be able to sustain providing that value full time for people, you know, which just seems like a really disappointing situation. So
0: I'm I'm sure you've thought of courses around tailwind.
2: I sort of have, but it's, it's a tricky thing because I, I don't really know who, who all is using it and like what struggles they would actually have. And it also just kind of feels like I want to make this thing because I I'm excited about it and I want people to use it. And, uh, something about like announcing a course for it two weeks after just feels kind of like, Oh, so that's why he made the CSS framework, (laughs) which is totally not true at all. Right. Um, but if, if that's like the, the angle that has to be taken to like sustain it and make it something that I could, I could be able to spend more time on. I think people would probably be able to get behind that. So
0: Awesome. Well, it's been great talking to you. This is uh, one of our longer episodes, but I think it
2: was a good one. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Time flies, uh, for sure, when you're doing these things.
1: <laughs> yeah, I could keep talking for like uh, for another hour, but uh, being mindful of our listeners' time. <laughs> thanks for coming by, Adam. I appreciate it. It's good talking no, to you.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I've been uh, listening to the podcast since it was still the, the Giant Robots podcast and before Derek was on there and for for years and years and years so it's it's awesome to be able to be a guest on this show.
0: If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to artofproductpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.